0: Thanks for joining us for the Covenant Living broadcast with Pastor John Butler of Covenant Life Church, located at 130 Atlantic Avenue in Bremen, Georgia.
1: All right. uh, Grab your Bibles. Turn with me to John 15. John 15. While you're getting there, don't forget that we have uh, uh, offering boxes in the back. We're not going to receive an offering. but there are offering boxes in the back if you want to give your tithe or offerings today. If you'd rather give digitally, you can certainly do that through the Secure Give app as well. So please feel free to continue to be faithful. John 15, 12 through 17. The words of Jesus, he said, this is my commandment. Love each other in the same way I've loved you. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I don't call you slaves anymore because the master doesn't confide in his slaves. Now you are my friends because I've told you everything the father told me. You didn't choose me. I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce lasting fruit. He has expectations of us. So that the Father will give you whatever you ask for using my name. This is my command. And Jesus isn't forgetful. He's making sure you get the point. This is my command. Love each other. He said it twice in five verses. Father, would you help us to hear your voice ringing out down through the ages to love each other. Hear it. Understand it, comprehend it, and apply it so that we're not just hearers of the word or cheerers of the word, but that we're doers of the word. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Well, last week I started a series called The Metrics of Christianity. The premise is pretty simple. How do we measure our progress as followers of Jesus? We already heard that He has expectations of us. How do we know if we're doing it right? How do we know if we're getting it right? And Jesus tells us in this passage right here the sum total, you are a a gentlewoman and a scholar, thank you very much. The, The sum total of God's expectation of us as His people are summed up in those three words love each other. He said, this is my commandment, singular. This is it. If you want to know how to do what I'm calling you to do, love each other, period. You say, John, with all that's going on in the world, why are you talking about how we should measure up as believers? Because this world desperately needs real followers of Jesus right now, deployed as ambassadors of his kingdom. So if we think we're good because we, we go to church, If we think we're good because we've memorized some scriptures or because we know how to act in culturally acceptable ways, then we we have to realize we're not measuring up. That's not going to get it. That's way below the standard that he set. We have to love each other, everybody, all the time. That's the standard. That's what he said in this scripture was the metric of Christianity, and that's how we, that's, the, that's what we have to set for ourselves. Now, there's actually a, an Old Testament equivalent to that verse, or maybe a better way to say it is an Old Testament um, uh, companion piece to that verse. This verse that I'm talking about outlines what loving each other looks like. It's actually the verse that gave birth to the message last week uh, about, about uh, being humble. All right, so though I really felt led to go here in the last couple of weeks, I was honestly a little hesitant to take you to this passage of Scripture because it's been quoted so much, especially in the last few weeks, that I'm afraid it's become cliche. You know what I mean? You hear something so much that you quit listening to it sometimes. I want us to to make sure that we take the time and hear what the Spirit is saying to the church through the Word of God today. All right, so let's look at Micah chapter 6 and verse 8. Can we do that? Micah 6, verse 8. This is the NIV. He has shown you, O oh mortal. So, this is God speaking to us. He's shown you, O oh mortal, what's good and what does the Lord require of you? What are His expectations? What, what, where's He setting the bar for measuring what we do? Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with God. What's the Lord require of us? Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly before your God. Just like Jesus said, here's the one thing you need to do. God said to his people, Israel, you know what you're supposed to do. And God is the same yesterday and today and forever, right? His heart for us has not changed. His heart for humanity has not changed. So the quest, if the question is, what is the metric what is the measure of Christianity? Then Jesus' answer was, love each other. So the follow-up question is, how do we love each other? And this verse explains that. Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly. Does that make sense? Okay, they go together. It's two parts of the same thing. So last week, we talked about love and humility, how love gets expressed through humility. And we went to the book of James, and we saw how humility expresses itself by being slow to speak, quick to listen, and slow to get angry. And so from Micah, if you look at it from Micah's perspective, we've already done the walking humbly part. So today I want to talk about love and justice. And next week, I know, is Father's Day, but we're going to talk about love and mercy. I, I'm, I'm planning to preach a Father's Day message on the week after Father's Day. Will we all, We'll still all be fathers then, okay? So we'll, we're going to do that, but I have to finish I have to finish this thought because it's all... Listen, do justly, love mercy, walk humbly is not three separate thoughts, it's one thought. And if you don't do it all, you're going to get it wrong. So we'll, we'll, we'll handle that next week, okay? Today's love and justice. On the surface, the words act justly uh, mean exactly what they appear to mean, that you do the right thing, that you act in a way that is just that your decisions, your business dealings, your interactions with people should be right. They should be just. One of our core values here at Covenant Life expresses it this way, how you treat people matters. How you treat people matters. And we could spend a ton of time talking about how we should treat people as believers and how that expresses the love of God to them. But when you dig deeper into the meaning of the words act justly, you, you find that justly might be better translated justice. It's more, it's more than just doing the right thing. It's a higher concept. It's a bigger picture idea. It's about justice, not just for yourself, but for everybody. And when you look at the word act, it also can be understood and should be understood In a much broader sense. So it's not just do justice as an individual, but advance justice and and appoint justice and bring justice to pass. So when you put it together, God's call to us as believers is to seek or pursue justice as an expression of his love for the world. Okay? Now, I'm going to be honest with you. Growing up in in southern white churches, we didn't talk about social justice, like, at all. We didn't talk about it. On the other hand, the civil rights movement uh, of the 50s and the 60s was birthed out of the southern black church. So at the same time that they're ringing the bells of freedom and justice, we are completely silent in the white church. And that's why you've got this divide right now in the church. I was taught, either directly or indirectly, that social justice was a liberal political cause that good Bible-believing conservative Christians should stay away from. And I am ashamed to admit that I didn't spend a lot of time for a long time. I didn't spend much time either confirming or denying that. I just assumed that what I was told was true. But a really, really quick search of the Word of God, will reveal that God is and has always been very concerned about the issues of justice, of social justice, of poverty, of equality under the law, of widows and orphans and immigrants and strangers. I want to show it to you because if you were raised like I was, you're going to need to see it in black and white. And I don't know how uh, many Bibles makes a pastor holy, but I got three on the pulpits. So I don't know which one to wag at you, but we need, to, we need to see it in black and white, okay? Here's Isaiah chapter one. We read Isaiah 1:18 all the time, but read the context around it. Starting in verse 16, God says to uh, through the prophet, wash yourselves and be clean. Get your sins out of my sight. Give up your evil ways. What evil ways and sins is he talking about? He says, learn to do good seek justice, help the oppressed, defend the cause of orphans, fight for the rights of widows. Do you see all that social justice crammed in there? And then here comes what what we've always quoted to each other. Come and now let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, I'll make them white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, I'll make them white as wool. If you'll only obey me, Uh, you will have plenty to eat. And then verse 20 says, but if you turn away and refuse to listen, you'll be devoured by the sword of your enemies. I, the Lord, have spoken. You see the social justice there. The demand of the Lord for his people to be concerned about the cause of justice. Jeremiah 22, verse 3. This is what the Lord says, be fair-minded and just. Do what is right help those who've been robbed rescue them from their oppressors quit your evil deeds don't mistreat foreigners orphans and widows stop murdering the innocent that's pretty clear right verse 16 of the same chapter he says give he gave justice and help to the poor and the needy and everything went well for him isn't that what it means to know me says the lord So he says, if you know me, then you're going to involve yourselves in the causes of social justice. Amos chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. Away with your noisy hymns of praise. I will not listen to the music of your harps. You mean there's something that God wants more than church? Instead, I want to see a mighty flood of justice an endless river of righteous living more than he wants us to have good church. Proverbs chapter six, verses 16 through 19. There are six things the Lord hates. No, seven things he detests. Haughty eyes, that's proud. We talked about pride and prejudice. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that kill the innocent, a heart that plots evil, feet that race to do wrong, a false witness that pours out lies, a person who sows discord in a family, do you see all of the connections of the things that God hates the most with the, with the issues of social injustice in our, in our world? Proverbs 31, verses eight and nine. You're like, Proverbs 31, I thought this was about being a good woman. It is in the, in the last half. In the first half, it's about just being a good human being. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Ensure justice for those being crushed. Yes, speak up for the poor and the helpless and see they get justice. Well, pastor, that's all Old Testament. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 3. Remember those in prison as if you were there yourself. Remember also those being mistreated as if you felt their pain in your own body. James 1 and 27 pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means to care for widows and orphans in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. In Acts chapter 6, the first seven verses, it describes the, the system the apostles created to help take care of the widows to be fair to all the races of widows that they were trying to help. Because there was an outcry that there was prejudice and discrimination between the different races of widows they were serving. In Matthew chapter 25, the very week that Jesus was crucified, he tells us that the nations are going to be judged by how they treated the poor and the naked and the hungry and the sick and the imprisoned. He said what you've done or have not done to the least of these, you've done or not done to me. And then Luke chapter 4 verses 18 and 19. Jesus stands in his hometown synagogue, reads from the scroll of Isaiah, and this is his declaration of of his job description as the Messiah. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim that captives be released, that the blind can see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. Jesus came to the poor and the oppressed and the sick and the captive to declare that things were changing for them spiritually and to encourage them that God sees them and God hears them and God loves them and that the promise of the Messiah was and is that his earthly kingdom is coming where justice will prevail for everybody. So there is absolutely no biblical leg for us to stand on that the church of Jesus Christ should not be involved with and concerned about issues of social justice. If we are measured by how we love each other, but we don't care about issues of justice and fair treatment, then we can neither claim to love others nor claim to follow Jesus. Every person is God's creation and the reason Jesus died on the cross. And he does not take kindly to people mistreating or ignoring any of his kids. So justice is not optional. You're thinking, listen, pastor, can we just not come and just have some happy church, just some good church, read some happy scriptures and go on and just ignore all this stuff? Apparently not. Because the cry of God's heart is for his people to stand for, to love each other through justice. And if the last few weeks are any indication There's a lot of ways where that can go sideways. There's a ditch of injustice on both sides of pretty much every road you walk. So I want us to look at some of the some things that might help us navigate these trying times, these confusing times, and and be able to continue to meet the metric of Christianity, to love one another. So here's the first thing that we need to look look, look at about love and justice, and that's this the principle of justice the principle of justice what did god say why did god say he wanted us to seek justice in the first place why are we seeking justice because it's an expression of love justice is an it's the love is the principle of justice it's an expression of love love is the motivator and the mediator And if we ever abandon love as the principle of justice, we will find ourselves as guilty of injustice as the people that we claim to be standing up to. Let me give you some examples. We can, as believers, we can stand against abortion because we love babies and because we respect the sanctity of human life, but we cannot stand against abortion because we hate women who are considering abortion. We, we can't advocate the killing of abortionists in the name of protecting life. Do you understand that that's not justice motivated by love. That's revenge, and God's clear that, that we have no part of that. We can stand against uh, abuse and the institutional cover-up of people who are mistreated by pastors and other church leaders. We can stand up for those victims. Because we love them and because we want justice and healing for them, but we can't do that just because we hate preachers and we hate institutional church and we want to see that destroyed. Do you see the difference? Love is the principle of justice so we can stand against the killing of George Floyd and and, uh, Ahmaud Arbery and, and others because we love the black community, we love our black brothers and sisters, but not because we hate police officers. You understand the difference? It is, it's clearly exhausting and oppressive to live with the belief that your life matters less than other people's because of the institutional and systemic biases that exist against you and people who look like you. It is right and just that the church stand up against those injustices because God commands us to love each other. But abandoning love as the principle of justice turns reform into riot and conversation into chaos and discourse into discord. Rioting and looting, destroying people's property, insulting and throwing things at police officers of all races is neither love nor justice. Injustice cannot be justification for more injustice. When people use the sin of racism as a cover for the sin of lawlessness and the sin of rebellion, it mutes the voice of the righteous, peaceful protester who wants to talk about real justice and real reform. The kind of justice that God is talking about, the kind of justice he's compelling us to advocate for is justice motivated by love. And I'm not saying it's soft and sweet. I'm not saying it's warm and fuzzy. I'm not saying it avoids conflict and hard truth. When Jesus ran the money changers out of the temple, it was not a polite exchange of ideas. But it was motivated by by Jesus' love for his father's house and his love for his father's people. And by the way, he had the authority to do it because he owned the place. Injustice affects people, people that we're called to love. So when a believer sees injustice, we have to be courageous enough to speak up because we're called to love one another. Whether it's personal injustice or institutional injustice, love demands our voices. Paul called out Peter for mistreating the Gentiles. Jesus called out James and John for wanting to call down fire on an unbelieving village just because they woke up in a bad religious mood. Jesus called out the the Jewish elites for their hypocrisy and their cruelty. Nehemiah called out the Jewish loan sharks for taking advantage of people during a national crisis. Esther called out the racism and genocidal scheming of Haman. And the list just goes on and on and on of people in the word who stood up against injustice. And today the church takes a strong stance against abortion and we should. We take a strong stance against euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide and we should. Those are issues of injustice But we talked about this in January on the Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. Human life does not stop bearing the image of God once it's born. If we want justice for the unborn because we're called to love those who cannot speak for themselves, then what about the eight-year-old Hispanic kid that's being raised in abject poverty? What about the 12-year-old white kid that's being abused and neglected by his his drug-addicted parents? What about the 33 year old woman that's being abused by her husband every night? What about the 25 year old man who was only guilty of jogging while black? What about the 45 year old woman who has been abused and trafficked for the last 30 years of her life? These are red and yellow, black and white. Are they not precious in his sight too? Their lives and their situations are dangerous and their voices are not being heard. So do we believe in the sanctity of human life or only in the sanctity of fetal life? Love demands justice. And justice has to be applied to everyone or it's not justice at all. Throughout history, the church has been at the forefront of condemning the most horrific practices and and challenging the most unjust institutions, it was Christians who stood up to Hitler and hid Jews. It was Christians who supported the abolition of slavery and and helped to run the Underground Railroad. It was Christians who marked with who marched with Dr. King in the Civil Rights Movement. This church, this bunch of Christians right here. Have created the Jericho Project to stand up for women who are being trafficked for sex. But not all Christians stand up. Not nearly enough, as a matter of fact. Why? Why? And that's what I'd like to consider in the second point about love and justice. It's not just the principle of justice, but the purity of justice. The purity of justice. And I want to show this to you in Exodus 23 and 8. Things like a slinky. Did you see that? That was exciting. Take no bribes, God said, for a bribe makes you ignore something that you clearly see. A bribe makes even a righteous, a righteous person twist the truth. The purity of justice is blindness to bribery. The purity of justice is blindness to bribery. Everybody can agree that bribery is a perversion of justice, right? A person who takes money to look the other way, a person who takes money to make a decision that goes against the the clear facts of the case is a disgrace to the concept of justice. But may I suggest to you that there is more than one way to bribe somebody? Too many people in the church have been bribed into silence by politics and by power and by popularity and by personal discomfort. When the church abandons justice and truth in exchange for any lesser thing, we lose our prophetic voice that declares God's truth over the culture. And if we're not declaring truth over the culture, who's going to? The American church is entirely too entangled with political parties. So much so that trying to preach eternal truth from the pulpit has become dangerous for pastors. Too many spiritual issues have become political landmines. We've exchanged the power of truth for the power of politics. The church has got to be willing to make courageous declarations for justice based on the truth of the word, no matter which party it offends. We've got to be committed to stand for what's right, no matter who's wrong. When the church walks past injustice without a word, we are the priest and the Levite who cross to the other side of the road to avoid the person that the good Samaritan stopped to help. We are relinquishing the moral high ground and compromising our integrity in the culture that we've been called to reach. I've seen preachers on TV twist themselves and the word of God into a knot trying to justify something that Trump said or Obama said or Clinton or whoever said. Does the word not say let God be true and every man a liar? You can honor and respect the rulers and authorities without rubber stamping everything that comes out of their mouths and everything that that they do. It's time for the church to be courageous enough to declare truth, period. Not our personal uh, preferences disguised as principle, but the eternal truth of God's word, rightly divided, honestly, humbly, and sincerely applied to the issues of our world. We have to call out injustice in any form, by any party, by any person, by any institution. It's time that we turn down the bribes of popularity and political power and stand up for what's right. And if the church doesn't do it, who's going to do it? And here's, here's the last thing about love and justice. Don't forget the power of justice. We talked about the principle of justice and the purity of justice. Don't forget the power of justice. I don't want this to be a spoiler alert or anything, but um, this world's a mess. Trying to establish or reestablish institutional justice is neither easy nor straightforward. And anybody who tells you it is, anybody who has a three-point plan that if we just do this and everything, all our problems are going to be solved is either really, really naive or they're trying to manipulate you for their own purposes. The power of justice is in people, not in politics, not in institutions. It's amazing what can happen when people get motivated by love, when they get blinded to bribery and focused on doing what's right. Powerful and important things have happened throughout history and can happen again when we understand that, when we understand that that's why Jesus said, love each other, because love changes everything. There are a lot of different ideas flying around the country right now, and rightfully so. That's, that's what upheaval does. It just lets you brainstorm as a culture. So there's lots of ideas flying around. Reforms and defunding and oversight and training and review boards and all kinds of things. Some of them might work. Most of them won't. I mean, seriously, that's what brainstorming is about. You just, just whatever crosses your mind, you just throw it out there. And most of it's not going to stick because it's not going to work. But here's the reality that I want you to, I want you to understand. No, and, and I don't have anything in particular in mind because there's a whole lot of things up in the air right now. But this is, this is true. It doesn't matter if you destroy one institution and recreate a different one. There is no institution so well set up that it can't be abused from the inside by people who have evil hearts. so you can set up the perfect system and people will ruin it. Just like injustice, justice flows from the hearts of people, not from the hearts of, not from institutions. You can put good people in a bad system and they'll find every possible way to bring a good and just outcome for people. But if you put bad people in a perfect system, they'll find every possible way to bring about travesties of justice and perversions of truth. Amen. You know, we, we adopted three kids a few weeks ago and we, had, we, we worked through the foster system for four years. And I said this to the people of the foster system, so this, this is not news. I said, listen, foster care system is broken. Everybody on the inside and the outside knows that. It's a hot, stinking mess. But we met people who were good, Amen. who wanted. We've, we met people along our journey who worked day and night to make sure that justice was done and that kids were taken care of inside of a system that is flawed and maybe hopelessly broken. But when you put enough good people in even the worst of systems, Great things can happen. It's, it's not going to come down to the systems that we put in place. It's going to come down to the people who are part of those systems. Okay? You understand what I'm saying? There, there are many godly men and women in law enforcement who can help reestablish trust in the black community by being brutally honest about their failures and their mistakes. By calling out, and I'm, I'm seeing this happen more and more from, from police chiefs and sheriffs and people all over the country, calling out injustice when it happens, holding each other accountable to the, to the, to the law and to the principles of justice. And listen, it's the same in churches when pastors are abusing people. It's the same in in education when teachers are not doing what they're supposed to be for their students. It's the same in every business and organization in this country. No institution has integrity that doesn't come from the people who serve inside that institution. So that's why the church has to rise up and be committed to the issues of justice because our nation is a mess. But our hope is not in politicians. Our hope is in Jesus and in his kingdom. And his his kingdom is in his people. Jesus said, when he was on the earth, he said, they were like, Jesus, where's your kingdom? He said, look around. You're the kingdom. You're the kingdom. There's no places you can go that says kingdom of God. We are the kingdom of God. And if his will is going to be done in this this world, it's going to be done in and through us. So justice can roll down like a river, but it will always take brave men and women of all races to stand up for what's right, no matter who's wrong. To seek justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with God and others. It's how we demonstrate that we are followers of Jesus. It's how... We love each other. And it's how we meet the metric of Christianity. We love each other. Now, here's the, here's the altar call. Because I don't know if, if you've been like me. But I've been a little bit um, confused as to where to put my feet. Because the sand keeps shifting. Shifting. And, and last night, I remembered a conversation I had with uh, Pastor Garvin Sellers, who, who passed away just a few weeks ago. And to the extent that you can be friends with somebody who's almost 50 years older than you, Garvin was my friend and a mentor in ministry. And I had the privilege of driving him to a service one night. And he and I were in the front seat, and I got to just spend an hour each way listening to him tell stories about him uh, in the early days of his ministry when he was evangelizing. And he said he would usually stay with the pastor in the pastor's house or in the parsonage, which was an adventure. And he said if they offered me breakfast, I'd go eat breakfast, and then I'd go back to my room, and I'd open my Bible, and I'd lay it on my bed, And I'd get on my knees and I'd pray and I'd read the word until God gave me a word. And then I'd get up and I'd go preach. And then we'd come home and we'd sleep and we'd get up and we'd do it again. And I just thought, God, help me to be more like that. And not just me, not just the people in the pulpits. But everybody who claims the name of Jesus, may we get on our knees and shut our mouths and open the word and say, God, I'm not going to speak until you give me a word. I'm not saying anything until I know that it's what you want me to say. I'm not doing anything until you tell me to move. So what do we do? 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32. From the tribe of Issachar, there were 200 leaders of the tribe. Does that say 200? Yeah, 200 leaders of the tribe with their relatives. This is the part I want you to pay attention to. All these men understood the signs of the times and knew the best course for Israel to take. If there's ever been a time where we need to pray for the spirit of the men of Issachar. It's today. We need some men and some women who can recognize what's going on in the culture and can know through the, through the enabling of the Holy Spirit, can know what we're supposed to do and how we're supposed to do it. You cannot just run out headlong into this culture today and just say whatever crosses your mind. Because you'll not only blow up whatever conversation you're trying to have, but you'll ruin your chance to be a witness and a light in a world that desperately needs it. So today, as we approach the altar, I, I want us to ask God for this, for this spirit, this enabling that He gave the men of Issachar. And here's the second scripture I want to read to you in Acts chapter 4. Peter and John had been arrested and were standing before the Jewish council and they had been commanded by them not to preach in the name of Jesus anymore. And they whipped whipped them and they scolded them and they gave them that order and then they let them go. Peter and John went straight back to their people, right back to the church, told them what was going on and they prayed. They prayed. If there's ever been a time that this world needs prayer, that church need, churches need prayer, it's now. And they prayed, but they didn't pray in the way that you would think they would pray. They said this in verses 29 and 30, and now, O Lord, hear their threats. And they didn't say, and sick them, God. Strike them down. They said, hear their threats and give us, your servants, great boldness in preaching your word. Stretch out your hand with healing power. May miraculous signs and wonders be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And so as we approach the altar today, I want us to pray, God, help us to be like the apostles. Help us not to pray that you change our circumstances. Because in some cases, the the change, the upheaval is good. If it gets us to a better place, then it's good. But we're going to have to have the courage to face these troubling times with wisdom and understanding. We're going to have to operate in the power and the enabling of the Holy Spirit. And when we're able to do that, if we will step up and step into the mantle that God has for us, then, then people will see that's like a it's like signs and wonders. When these people show up, peace happens. Ideas are generated. It, justice flows like a river. But it takes a submission of our hearts to the work of the Holy Spirit.
0: 3747. That's 770-537-3747. At Covenant Life, our mission is to go and make disciples by being real, relational and reaching. Be sure to join us next week for more Covenant Living with Pastor John Butler.